Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Tom Hall. My guest today on this encore edition of Midday is Scott Shane, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who had a 36 year career with the New York Times and the Baltimore Sun. He was a Moscow correspondent, he covered national security and foreign affairs, and he's the author of an award-winning book, Objective Troy, A Terrorist, a President, and the Rise of the Drone. He retired from the Times in 2019 and dove into a very different kind of project, a book that tells the story of an extraordinary man, Thomas Smallwood. Born into slavery, Smallwood purchased his freedom and helped hundreds of other enslaved people escape in the Baltimore, Washington area. He capped off those successful escapes by taunting slaveholders in print, and along the way, he coined the term Underground Railroad. Scott Shane has written a compelling, assiduously researched, and eye-popping book that I hope will catapult Thomas Smallwood out of obscurity and into the light of recognition he richly deserves. The book is called Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott Shane joined me in Studio A. We spoke in September. Good to see you. Great to see you, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on. And congratulations on this book, because this is just, um, it's shocking, it's amazing, (laughs) uh, and it's a great, great piece of writing. How did you uh, first come to know anything about Thomas Smallwood, this amazing figure? Well, it's funny that this, in in some ways, the origins of this book go go back about twenty five years to when I was living in Baltimore, and we our kids were little, and the Inner Harbor was, uh, you know, sort of new and and uh, thri- you know, sort of jumping down there, and we used to take our kids in strollers, I remember, uh, and push them along the water, and I then stumbled across the fact that the Inner Harbor had been uh, the location of a thriving trade in human beings for about for the fir- entire first half of the 19th century and i found that just shocking and i wrote about it for the sun at the time and then always wanted to return to it so when i left the new york times in 2019 i i kind of jumped into research. Of course, it was the beginning of the pandemic and all the archives were closed, all the libraries were closed. So it was a little bit of a struggle. And I wanted to find a story to tell in the slave trade. But it was difficult because almost everybody being sold south was illiterate, didn't leave, you know, journals and and recollections. Uh, The slave traders themselves were... uh, literate but not literary they weren't they were also not inclined to brag about what this business grim business that they were in so i kind of broadened my research a little bit and i'd heard that a guy an abolitionist had died in the maryland penitentiary and then i heard that he had a uh, a sort of partner in the escape business who had gotten very very little attention and that was thomas smallwood and the more I looked at Smallwood, he who, who and we all, should be clear, it's the partner who died in the penitentiary. The partner died in the penitentiary, and his name is Charles Torrey, and he was a younger white guy. And you know, the the relatively few accounts of their operation have sort of portrayed Thomas Smallwood as Charles Torrey's black sidekick, 
But after I got into researching Thomas Smallwood, I realized it was very much the other way around. Smallwood was about a dozen years older, and I think it's fair to say um, just a steadier, um, more reliable kind of personality. Tory was sort of a a young hothead, and uh, and so it was really true that Tory was the was Smallwood's white sidekick. But as I got into Smallwood, I, I mean his his story is just so astonishing. Here's a guy who's born into slavery, who ends up extremely well educated without ever going to school for a day, and then you know builds a, a business as a shoemaker, buys his own freedom. And then basically turns his attention to, to the problem of slavery, uh, just burning with the desire to do something about it. And that's what leads to his uh, starting, you know, this extremely risky, extremely daring uh, operation organizing mass escapes from our region. Yeah, not only were they risky and daring, but they were expansive. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I mean, Harriet Tubman uh, wrote that uh, she probably helped about 70 different people mm-hmm. uh, escape slavery. But this was happening before Tubman. I mean, Tubman mm-hmm. didn't escape herself until the end of the 1840s, I think mm-hmm. 1848. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she didn't start, you know, her uh, connection to the so-called Underground Railroad until much later than small, because we're talking about the 1830s and 40s here. Yes. And how many people do you estimate Smallwood and, you know, with the help of Tory and some others, uh, how many people do you think they liberated? You know, I should, I should start by saying it's impossible to say this was a clandestine operation. But one of the things that does help you make a kind of educated guess is that Smallwood was writing about these escapes using the real names of the enslavers and the people escaping. And uh, there was other other sort of coverage up in Albany. They were often uh, writing dispatches about how many people had passed through and that sort of thing. Tory eventually uh, claimed that he had assisted 400 people in escaping. Um, That number holds up only if you uh, credit him with Everything Smallwood did, much of it was on his own. But the two of them together might be in the 300 or 400 range. Uh, it's certainly, I would say, in, in the in the 200 and up. And, uh, you know, part of the reason is whenever they could, they were not sending people off in ones and twos, but by the wagon load. Their basically MO was they would buy or rent or borrow uh, a wagon, a, some kind of covered wagon, and load it up with 10, 15, uh, I think I've seen even 20 people, some of them children, uh, and, you know, sort of disguise it, cover it up, and take off in the middle of the night. Uh, so uh, when they succeeded, and, and they uh, most of the time they did with these wagon loads, uh, you know, the numbers can can uh, rise pretty fast. But their whole modus operandi was go big or go home. I yes. Mean, they just, they wanted to do this on a on a much larger scale than the one or two people who were escaping uh, on their own. They were helping large groups. How'd they get away with it? I mean, how do you put a, a, a wagon full of, uh, you know, people who are 
very valuable to the to their owners, you know, the chattel yeah. slavery, uh, who had every uh, resource at their disposal to, yes. to have these people found and brought back. Well, yes. I mean, you know, I, I made a rough calculation that a, a particular wagon load, uh, uh, an escape that, that Smallwood describes in some detail, uh, with 15 people, uh, might have been worth $200,000 in today's dollars, uh, you know, th- these people uh, on the auction block. And so when you think about that, it's sort of like a bank robbery. You know, they are they're taking... And this is from multiple households at a time. So suddenly you have a whole band of aggrieved slaveholders, uh, you know, who, who are motivated to, to um, go hunting and send uh, slave catchers north, save slave catching police officers north, uh, which, um, which was part of the story. You know, I sometimes wonder how they got away with it. Uh, and, you know, I have to say they... they uh, their light blazed brightly, but not for terribly long. You know, within within basically three years, they were out of business. Uh, and but for for quite a while, uh, they had people in Washington, people in Baltimore, who uh, were slaveholders. Uh, you know, really kind of buffaloed as to how this was happening in both cities. Uh, wealthy slaveholders put up big reward money, and uh, you know part of the part of what was really aggravating them was Smallwood was writing these letters, uh, mocking and attacking the slaveholders. So it was sort of the the material loss of their workers and their servants on the one hand, and then being held up to public ridicule on the other hand. The book is Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Scott Shane is the author and my guest here on Midday. Uh, and this is a great part of the story, This these taunting uh, letters that Smallwood's writing under a pseudonym that are being published in an abolitionist publication in Albany, New York, which was the, the destination for many of these uh, folks who were uh, assisted by Smallwood and Tory to, to get out, but their ultimate destination was Canada. Uh, why Canada? Well, it's funny. There was a debate within the abolitionist community at the time. Uh, some folks argued that people sh- who were fleeing north should be encouraged to stay, you know, at least in upstate New York, because they could sort of support the cause of abolition. Some of them actually went on the lecture service uh, circuit in the North talking about their experiences in slavery, you know, following the example of Frederick Douglass and so on. Uh, others, and Smallwood was very much in this camp, thought it is not going to be safe anywhere on U.S. soil. And it was true. Um, you know, as we know, uh, there were bounty hunters and just outright kidnappers who uh, would kidnap free black people in the North and drag them south and sell them into slavery or back into slavery. And, uh, you know, an example to me of the threats that existed was to learn that the, uh, the police from Baltimore, Baltimore police constables, would travel as far as Albany trying to catch people 
who had fled slaveholders in our region. And the, the motivation, of course, was that cops at the time it was sort of this early police force. Uh, they were making their, their salary for their day job, and then they were trying to collect the rewards that the slaveholders offered for recapturing and dragging back south uh, these people who had escaped. So imagine, uh, at, you know, with the, with the uh, travel time that it took at the time that a police constable goes from Baltimore to Albany on these missions. So that does suggest how hazardous it was, even, uh, you know, way up into New York. And one of the reasons Smallwood always encouraged people to keep going till they crossed into Canada. And it suggests just how much the slaveholders, the enslavers, were willing to pay to retrieve uh, the people who had escaped. Yeah, one of the things, I mean, the source for this book, the biggest source for this book is old newspapers. And one of the newspapers is the Baltimore Sun, where I worked for 21 years. And, you know, almost every day there were the slave traders ads. And almost every day there were the runaway ads saying, uh, you know, um, that uh, a, a particular enslaved man or woman had taken off you know, here's what they were wearing, here's what they looked like, and, you know, $25, $50 uh, is offered to anyone who can bring them back. And so, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the newspaper was part of the, part of the system in, at, at the time. And uh, these publications uh, yes. in Albany, the yes. abolitionist publications, is one called the Toxin, I guess? Yes, Toxin of Liberty. Toxin, T-O-C-S-I-N, is an old word meaning bell, so essentially it means Liberty Bell. And it later took on the name of Albany Weekly Patriot. But it was a small abolitionist paper, um, you know, fairly obscure at the time, but it happened to be one where Charles Torrey had connections and uh, he had actually come to Washington, D.C. in 18, end of 1841 with the idea of, of being a correspondent for a bunch of small abolitionist papers, and this was one of them. So his idea was to cover Congress and write about slavery and send these dispatches to these uh, northern papers. Uh, but Smallwood, perhaps with some encouragement from Tory, um, I think very much... Uh, under the influence of Charles Dickens, uh, stylistically, Smallwood, not long after they start sending people north, uh, starts writing these dispatches every week or two to the Albany paper. How he did this is kind of beyond me, because this is a guy who's got four kids and a fifth on the way. He's and a, a full-time job as a shoemaker. Full-time job as a shoemaker, trying to support his family. Uh, and... At night, he's you know trying to you know trying to gather people from different corners of Washington or Baltimore, get them in a wagon, and get them off on the way north. And somehow he finds time to write up these adventures in a kind of um, inimitable uh, satirical style for this paper in Albany, and they're really remarkable letters. Uh, they. As I mentioned, they use the real names of the slaveholders. They use the real names, first name and last name, of the people escaping, escaping them. They're very much in real time. Sometimes Smallwood notes that he had to hold off on sending off a dispatch because 
one of the people he had sent north, he wasn't sure they were in Canada yet, and he didn't want to, you know, screw things up for him. So uh, he was writing them under a pseudonym for obvious reasons. What he was doing was highly illegal and extremely dangerous. So he he uh, stole a name from Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers, which w- was a kind of global bestseller at the time, and uh, and that's how he would sign these dispatches. But they were loaded with details about the slaveholders and uh, some of their misdeeds that you could only know if you were essentially living next door. And that's what he was doing. He was lurking among these uh, slaveholders. And, you know, I came to kind of understand that he was using his status as a black man, which made him sort of invisible to a lot of these white slaveholders to eavesdrop, to uh, essentially hide among them taking notes. And uh, these letters became a huge hit with the readers of this Albany paper. And one of the things Smallwood insisted on was that the editors send a copy of any copy, any issue of the paper that named a particular slaveholder in Baltimore, Washington and environs to that slaveholder, just to make sure they could read how they were being mocked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just do it and rub their noses in it. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Scott Shane, we're talking about his new book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. We'll have more with Scott Shane on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to this encore edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're listening to a conversation I had in September of 2023 with Scott Shane, an author and former journalist with the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times. His latest book chronicles the Herculean efforts of Thomas Smallwood, an unknown hero of the abolitionist movement. A formerly enslaved black man, he organized the escapes to freedom of groups of enslaved people in the Baltimore, Washington area. The book is called Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. Because our conversation was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any new calls or online comments today. So, Scott, when when Smallwood is rubbing the noses of the enslavers uh, in these dispatches to the paper in Albany, um, this this was a very dangerous situation. You talk about how Baltimore and 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 Smallwood was basically living like in the Bladensburg area. He was in, he was in D.C. Right? Yeah, he he was born in Bladensburg and spent his his early years there, but he. He moved just like I think it's six miles down down river. We're talking about the Anacostia River, which was then known as the Eastern Branch, uh, into D.C. So by the time uh, he was organizing the escapes, he's living in southeast D.C. in a, a little house on Fourth Street and um, just a couple blocks from the Navy Yard, which is still there. Uh, and you know, I, I did this, so I know it's it's a 15 minute walk. Uh, from the U.S. Capitol. Um, and, the, and Washington was a very small town at the time. There were 23,000 people, roughly, uh, in Washington City. 
And so yeah, even, even at that time, smaller than Albany, New York. For yeah, example. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, he, he knew a lot of his neighbors. And uh, and my impression is that that neighborhood was quite diverse, had some well-off whites, some working class whites, uh, free blacks and enslaved blacks, uh, all living, you know, sort of, you know, uh, all together in the same set of uh, set of streets. Baltimore, uh, we've known for a long time, was uh, had one of the highest concentrations of freed blacks yes. in the country. The highest, um, yeah. The you highest. you uh, report that it's one in five, mm-hmm. uh, were, and right now it's about three in five mm-hmm. uh, here in, in the city. But um, there were still, uh, what you, you report about and, and others have as well, uh, these things called black laws uh, that you know, made it very dangerous uh, to do a number of things, in, including having on your person any abolitionist papers. Yes. I mean, one of the things that you realize in reading about Thomas Smallwood and reading what he had to say is that while he bought his freedom, he couldn't buy full citizenship. His uh, As a free black man, he was subject uh, to you know, really kind of draconian laws and surveillance. Uh, I kind of, in my own mind, uh, maybe because uh, early in my career, I lived in the Soviet Union for a few years, but I was I was sort of thinking that free black people at the time lived in almost a, a sort of totalitarian society while their white neighbors were, were living in a more or less democratic society. And, uh, you know, an example of that was that both in D.C. and Baltimore, African-Americans, free or enslaved, had to be off the streets by 10 p.m. It was a curfew. And if you were caught after curfew, all kinds of bad things could happen. You could be locked up. You could be fined. You could be lashed if you were enslaved. Uh, And if you traveled out of state, even as a free person, you had to get sort of special permission and do a lot of paperwork so you could make sure you could come back into the state. Uh, and if you, uh, the Maryland General Assembly passed a law that uh, prescribed up to 10 years in prison for uh, possessing, just possessing abolitionist literature. And uh, in, a, in a somewhat well-known case, a man was actually uh, sent to prison for owning what was the best-selling novel of the mid-19th century, which was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, You know, so it is really a kind of Soviet system in that sense. And as the free population increased uh, in Maryland, the slaveholders got very nervous. Uh, They were afraid that this, uh, this whole notion of, you know, Walking around and earning wages and that sort of thing would infect their uh, their enslaved workers and sort of you know uh, cause trouble. So they pressured the General Assembly to pass more and more of these black laws, of these very restrictive laws. So um, so it, you know you were in a very precarious position as a free person, let alone as an enslaved person at the time. Scott Shane, the book is called Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. I'm Tom Hall. You're listening to Midday. And Scott, one of the uh, fundamental uh, dimensions of this story um, is the domestic slave trade. Much has been written, much has been uh, studied about the Middle Passage where 
people were kidnapped from Africa and brought here. But that practice was banned putatively in 1808. Um, we're talking about Smallwood uh, acting in you know, the 1840s because at that point, uh, because of a number of economic conditions and other conditions, people were being, uh, as you say, uh, abducted one way or the other, uh, or if they were enslaved here, just simply sold to people further south. Mm-hmm. So talk about why people were doing that. And and uh, you make the case, and I think it's a, a compelling argument, that that part of the story, the domestic st- slave trade, uh, as compared to the Middle Passage, is uh, considerably less reported uh, in history. Yeah. I mean, I must say, I find that my friends, my very well-educated you know, friends, do not really understand the domestic slave trade uh, as a mass, long-lasting, large-scale phenomenon. Not just, you know, people understand that the enslaved were sold from farm to farm and th- there were auction blocks in various cities and some of them were preserved. But this is <clears throat> this is something, uh, this is one of the largest forced migrations in human history. It began somewhere around 1810 or so after the African trade was banned in 1808 by Congress. And basically what happened was Eli Whitney had invented the cotton gin, which just made it much easier to process cotton. There was booming demand for cotton. So uh, the cotton plantations of the Deep South were expanding at a very rapid rate. And so there was insatiable demand for labor in the Deep South, uh, growing cotton, also growing sugar, sugar cane plantations. And at the same time as it happened, uh, tobacco had been king in this area in, in Maryland, Virginia. And tobacco wears out the soil. And so there, there was a, a big shift taking place from tobacco, which was extremely labor-intensive, to grains and other crops that were much less labor-intensive. So it turned out there was uh, actually a, an excess of enslaved workers in our region, the Chesapeake region, and much of the Upper South. So uh, naturally, uh, supply and demand being what it is, uh, there arose a class of, of domestic slave traders who would uh, were the middlemen who would buy uh, people who were not wanted by their enslavers in this region and either march them south hundreds of miles in uh, chained together in what were called coffles, uh, slave coffles, or in Baltimore, much more common, was to accumulate them in slave jails, private jails, most of them around the harbor, <clears throat> and then... Uh, put them aboard when you had a kind of a shipload, uh, force them to, to board a ship, which would then take them usually to New Orleans. And in New Orleans, uh, the guy I wrote about, write about, Hope Slatter, he was the dominant slave trader in Baltimore in the uh, late 1830s, the 1840s. He had a, believe it or not, they used the word showroom in New Orleans, where these people who had been, in many cases, ripped away from their families, taken a thousand miles, and you know were put on display and sold into the into the plantations, basically never to be heard from again, from the point of view of their their families in uh, in Maryland. Uh, <clears throat> so, it was a um, a very grim, merciless uh, business that took 
place from about 1810 to the Civil War. And historians estimate that something like a million people were forced south during that time. That's actually about double the number of people who came to the United States you know, in the Middle Passage from Africa. So this was a very large phenomenon. And a sort of poignant marker of this was that for decades after the Civil War, black families were putting ads, you know, essentially classified ads in newspapers all over the country saying, help me find my mother, my yeah, son. Because the families had been my brother completely destroyed. Shattered, uh, yeah. With some being uh, shipped south and exactly. others staying here in this area. Yeah. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking to, to think about. Um, and it, it's also uh, heartbreaking to think that on Pratt Street, as you say, not far yes. from the Inner Harbor, what we now know as the Inner Harbor, was a slave jail, a private yes. Slave Jail. Absolutely. So tell us more about this character, Hope Slatter, uh, who was the most successful slave trader in this domestic slave trade. Uh, and a lot of people are familiar with the, the movie 12 Years a Slave, yes. uh, which concerned a character, uh, Solomon Northrup, who's yeah. you know, a, a real historical character, yes. uh, who was kidnapped. Yes, free uh, man who was kidnapped. Free man, in the, put yeah. into slavery in, yeah. in uh, the South for 12 years. 12 years. Um, but, but, but Slatter, was he doing that sort of stuff as well, or was he, was he trading uh, between enslavers? Mostly, he was sending agents out across Maryland uh, to some degree into Delaware, uh, maybe into, into Virginia, but mostly Maryland, onto the eastern shore, southern Maryland. And they would travel around saying, you got anyone you want to sell from plantation to plantation, farm to farm. Uh, they would shackle the people, haul them away, and he would lock them up in this slave jail on Pratt Street. And Where on Pratt Street <clears throat> was it? It's uh, like near Howard. Street? Very near Howard. Yeah, mm -hmm. just a door down from Howard, on the uh, on the north side, opposite a big building uh, that was known as the Repository, where believe it or not, the circus would come to town. So this slave jail was right across from the circus, and you know that sort of says something. This was a business that at first people found shocking. And there was actually a grand jury report that was uh, quite interesting. Grand juries at the time not only indicted people, but sometimes put out reports on, on sort of troubling phenomena. And there was a very interesting grand jury report saying this is a terrible thing. You know, men and women locked in these cells that are filthy. And, but apparently the white folks um, and the, you know, the the powers in Maryland got used to this. And so by the time, by the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s, it's just a business. And Hope Slatter was, uh, was a businessman. And so he had, he had grown up in Georgia and was, as a young man, was a small town sheriff. And as a sheriff, you get involved in estate sales and auctions and that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of these estates included human property, enslaved people. And he clearly got an idea. And for a while, he spent several years going around uh, living in hotels in southern cities and buying and selling people. And once he, I guess, sort of, you know, understood the trade, he moved to Baltimore, which was, you know, frankly, kind of the big time because that was... You know, this, the, the number of people coming out of Baltimore 
and some of the other ports, Alexandria, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, uh, you know, there were thousands of people being shipped south. So, and, you know, soon enough, he built this, uh, this slave jail and built a very big, very lucrative business. And it's also um, just so, it just boils one's blood to read about Slatter's efforts to legitimize himself, to to be accepted in high society. He bought a pew at the Methodist Church on Charles Street. He he really tried to ingratiate himself with the um, the commercial class in Baltimore. Was that successful? You know, um, it was. It seems to have been almost the sort of defining mission of his life, other than making a lot of money. Uh, and it's it's quite striking how persistent he was. And another element of this was he would actually receive abolitionists who wanted to visit a slave jail and were coming down from the north. And, of course, Baltimore is the first uh, big city in the slave south that you would you would come to. And so there was a phenomenon at the time almost uh, that you might almost call slavery tourism. So anti-slavery people come and he would say, geez, you know, uh, I know how you feel, but this is a legal business and let me show you around, you know, it's not that bad. And so he's always trying to improve his image. He lied about his business to these people repeatedly. He would, he would say things like, I never separate families. And there's lots of evidence that he constantly separated families and would, would sell a six-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old child, if someone wanted to buy him, away from parents, away from siblings. Uh, so he was a pretty despicable person, I, I think it's fair to say. But it's interesting, the slaveholders as a class, although they very much relied on his services, and many of them, uh, you know, sold their enslaved workers to Hope Slatter, he never seems to have succeeded in sort of becoming a man about town, uh, winning the respect, uh, sort of in keeping with his wealth. And this seems to have driven him crazy, and eventually he retires from the trade and moves to the Deep South, where, you know, he feels he won't be looked down upon as a as a yeah, slave trader. Moves to Montgomery, Alabama and buys up a bunch of real estate. Yeah, Mobile, Alabama. Yeah, yeah Mobile. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Uh, he gets in make, the real estate makes business, another, basically. Makes another financial killing down there. We're listening to a conversation I had in September of 2023 with Scott Shane about his latest book, Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. We'll have more of this archive edition of Midday on the other side of a quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. Welcome back to this encore edition of Midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're revisiting a conversation I had in the fall of 2023 with Scott Shane, a Pulitzer Prize-winning former reporter with the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times. We're talking about his most recent book, a biography of Thomas Smallwood, who freed hundreds of slaves from the Baltimore-Washington area. The book is called Flee North, 
A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. It was chosen by Publishers Weekly and Amazon and the New York Times as one of the best books of 2023. So, Scott, let's go back to the fact that Thomas Smallwood named the Underground Railroad. He's the first person in print to make reference to this. Um, and it was kind of a joke for him. It was one of the ways he was taunting the, the enslavers uh, when he would write about these escapes that he helped organize. Yeah, it's actually a fun story um, and <clears throat> one that, you know, I think kind of further elevates Thomas Smallwood in, in my mind. Uh, but what here's what happened, uh, at least the way Smallwood tells it. There was a well-known, I think even notorious police constable based in Baltimore named John Zell. And he also did a lot of work in Washington because at the time he was sort of double-dipping. He was uh, on the police force in Baltimore, but he also had a detective agency that was uh, – doing a lot of work on the side. And the most lucrative of the work on the side was uh, recapturing people who had escaped slavery and returning them to their owners and collecting the rewards. So according to Smallwood, this guy John Zell is overheard expressing his frustration that so many people are disappearing from slavery overnight and he can't figure out how they're getting away. And he says something along the lines of, they must be getting away by underground railroad or steam balloon. And, you know, there were no underground railroads, and steam balloons apparently were an experimental technology at the time. So he's essentially saying, I don't get it. They must have been abducted by aliens. I don't see how this is happening. So Smallwood gets wind of this. I assume he did not hear Mr. Zell say this, but, you know, a friend told him about this. And he repeats it in one of his columns. And then he's just clearly captivated by the notion. Because first of all, this is a huge compliment to him and his uh, his sort of op- his escape operation that even a sophisticated police detective uh, can't figure out, you know, how they're doing it. So he starts riffing on this notion of an underground railroad in his columns that he's sending to the abolitionist paper in Albany. And, you know, he, he, uh, he's often taking the pose of someone comforting the bereaved slaveholders whose beloved uh, servants have run away. And so he advises them to report to the office of the Underground Railroad in Washington for further information on whatever, you know, on, on where their human property has disappeared to. And he appoints himself at one point the general agent of all the branches of the Underground Railroad. Anyway, he's having a grand time using this essentially, as he puts it once, as a way to lash the slaveholders verbally, uh, to mock them and to mock the fact that they can't figure out uh, where people and how people are getting away. And, uh, you know, I went, I when I first came across this, I thought, could this be the beginning of the term Underground Railroad. And indeed, there are now these wonderful, huge databases of 19th century newspapers. And, you know, you can plug in the words Underground Railroad. Sometimes it was four words, Underground Railroad. And if you do that search, you find that the very first uses of that term are in Smallwood's columns and uh, 
and other articles that pick up his language in this Albany paper. And then eventually, over the next couple of years, others pick up pick this up as a kind of term of mockery, and then gradually it becomes a kind of generic term for escapes from slavery. So this really is the uh, the beginning of that uh, of that terminology. The book is Flee North, A Forgotten Hero and the Fight for Freedom in Slavery's Borderland. The author is my guest, Scott Shane. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. So he eventually had to stop. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, this uh, aiding and abetting those escaping didn't last all that long. It was less than a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Charles Torrey was uh, imprisoned uh, in 19 or 1844, I guess. So, mm-hmm. you know, mid uh, 1840s. Um, and he died in prison. But Smallwood did get out. Um, do we know how Smallwood was found out? Do we know, uh, you know, when he knew that the, the, the gig was up? You know, I think what happened was the slaveholders who had been, um, you know, stripped of their uh, property by him uh, and, and then mocked uh, you know, really focused on this, paid a lot of police officers to try and figure it out. And eventually, Washington had a kind of new group of police officers known as the Auxiliary Guard. And the head of the Auxiliary Guard clearly began to suspect that Smallwood might be the guy behind this. And uh, in Smallwood's memoir, Smallwood wrote a, published a short memoir in 1851, he tells the very exciting story of being surprised by the police and running for it. And uh, he followed essentially the path that he'd sent a whole lot of other people on. And he ends up, uh, after a lot of uh, close calls and scrapes with disaster, uh, he ends up in, in Canada himself, where he settled in Toronto with his family and lived a very long life. Right. So his family and, and you know, were, they were all able to be with him and he was able to, to do what he had suggested so many other people do. Um, it, it is appalling that there is a movement, a political movement to suppress the teaching of this kind of story, this kind of event in uh, U.S. history, this kind of event in African-American history. Um, I had uh, Congressman Harris, Andy Harris, who represents the first district on a year or two ago, who, you know, said, uh, look, you know, we we don't want to be in the business of making uh, young white children uh, feel guilty uh, about slavery. It's, It's amazing to think that stories like this which are about not just slavery, but they're about heroism and they're about daring and they're about, uh, you know, uh, an inventiveness, a level of inventiveness that, uh, you know, heretofore we haven't even known about. Um, Where do you think that's headed? Boy, I hope nowhere fast. Um, Maybe it was uh, the experiences that I had overseas one was living in Russia at a time, as it happened under Mikhail Gorbachev, when Russians were learning the history of Stalin and the mass um, murder and mass uh, imprisonment that Stalin had engineered on his own people. Uh, you know, and the, and the feeling of sort of self-knowledge and liberation that that created. And then, you know, visiting a place like Berlin and you see what the Germans have done with the history of the Holocaust, it's right out there. It's not hidden away. Um, and I think, 
you know, it's a, the sign of a healthy society as one that can look back at its history, including the very dark parts of the history, teach them in school. And, uh, you know, I think it's an obligation of an American citizen to know the history. These guys, these politicians who are uh, worried about the hurt feelings of white children, I think, you know, are also just wrong. You know, if, if uh, a white child or a black child, I think, reads the story of Thomas Smallwood, they will be inspired and thrilled and the story and and the story of Thomas Smallwood doesn't really work without the story of a guy like Hope Slatter, the villains of this period. And in fact, you know, as Thomas Smallwood noted, many of the people who came to him for help escaping were actually um, motivated to, to to do that because they learned they were in danger of being sold south to a guy like Hope Hope's or by a guy like Hope Slatter. So these are these are interrelated phenomena, and it's our history. And uh, I I wish nothing but failure to these attempts to soften it, whitewash it, cover it up. And of course, the auxiliary guard you write about the slave patrols uh, that were you know uh, sent out to find people who had escaped. Uh, any number of uh, folks that I've had on this show, historians, African American historians in particular are saying that the slave patrols became the basis for police departments, uh, the, 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 the network of police organizations. Absolutely. And it's that lineage uh, that, that can be traced to the George Floyds, the yeah. Breonna Taylors, the, 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 the abuses that police departments uh, you know, uh, are all too well known Yeah, for. I mean, it's a, it's a sad history, but looking at both, the, I have a chapter on the police in this book, and looking at both the origins of policing in Baltimore and the origins of policing in Washington, uh, you know, they were essentially the servants of what abolitionists at the time called the slave power, uh, the, you know, the sort of influential, politically influential and wealthy uh, slaveholders uh, who essentially ran the slave society. And, uh, you know, there are in the Maryland archives uh, things like invoices from people. One of of the ones I looked at was in Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, who was essentially billing the government for payment for the uh, lashes that he had applied, the whippings that he had applied on people, on black people he'd caught either out after dark or fleeing slavery or committing some other crime. What do you make of folks who say, look, the stuff that happened with slave patrols in the 1840s, the 1860s, you know, before the Civil War, has nothing to do with what's going on with policing in 2022 or 2023. Uh, that there just is no linkage. There is no connection. You know, I wish I, wish I believed that. But I think anyone who, who sort of um, reads this history and immerses themselves in this history you're going to look at an episode, a horrific episode like the death of George Floyd, a little bit differently because, unfortunately, there is a continuous history. It may be very, very different today, and you know, I have nothing but respect for the great majority of police officers today. But, uh, you know, it is, it is unfortunately, uh, a continuous history that goes all the way back to the origins of policing in America. Scott Shane. His new book is called Flee North, 
a forgotten hero in the fight for freedom in slavery's borderland. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Tom. Scott Shane's book about the heroics of Thomas Smallwood was chosen by Publishers Weekly as one of the 10 best books of 2023. It was also a best book selection on Amazon and in the New York Times. We spoke in September. That's it for this archive edition of Midday. You can listen to our show on the radio or on demand. We hope you'll check us out on the WYPR app and that you'll subscribe to our podcast, which you can find in all the usual places. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Music